Oh, a drink would be good about now. Oh no, I don't drink. I have to do something else. I have to interrupt the thought that can interrupt the behavior. Because what we think about, we bring about. And if yeah. I'm going to sit here and think about how I'm going to drink in about an hour, I'm going to drink unless I interrupt the thought of, oh, I don't drink. I don't drink right. alcohol. I'm going to do this instead. We help them. You know, everybody has a light under all this dirt. And the dirt is life experience. And we help them get rid of the dirt so they can shine because their light's under all this life experience that they need to untangle, sort out, uh, heal from, mend from, and shine. Think about your beliefs and where did they come from and do they serve you? Are they yours? Well, that's the main question is, is it, does it work? Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, the leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it so much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So While this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, the stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally human. So love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I want to be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're going to be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here. And thanks for listening. Hey, listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview. These episodes may contain adult language and subject matter that's not appropriate for all audiences. Also, we are not doctors or psychiatrists. So, what we share on these episodes is certainly not to be considered medical or psychological advice, just our own personal experiences, which we hope will be helpful to others on a similar quest. So that's it. And thanks for listening. Okay. Hey, Sober Family and our entire listener community. We have a great show in store for you guys today. And so our guest is Nicole Cameron. And for those of you who may not know, uh, she is a professional coach and a consultant and a woman in recovery, obviously, from alcoholism and myriad other uh, life challenges. And you can find her work at uh, her website, which is www.coachwithnicole.ca. Or you can find her on Instagram at coachwithnicole. And she's got all her tools and all kinds of, you know, very interesting things and, and, uh, to find out about kind of what she offers and, and, and who the types of people she works with different modalities, that kind of thing. We're going to talk about that a little bit today as well. Um, but Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you for having me to have you. I'm glad you said yes. And that we, that we figured out a time. Um, okay. Well, I have to start with I have to start with an icebreaker, which is if your if your life had a theme song, what would it be? Oh my gosh! I yeah, you know what? I never I never thought of of this before, and um, when I when I saw that, I'm like, hmm. I think 
I think a theme song for me now, maybe not in the past, but now would be, um, I love this song by Joy Williams, Coming Home. And mm. um, yeah, and I love it because um, it's, I interpreted it as my perception is, is that I'm coming home to myself. I'm returning mm-hmm. to who I truly am. Um, you know, as this mature woman that I am at 56 years old now, I'm finally figuring out who I am today. And so that song of coming home is just, oh, I love it. I just love that it. That is beautiful. That is so beautiful. And I, I relate to that completely. I know for me in recovery, it's been like, i I feel like I just got introduced to myself when I got sober, which is really weird at, at different ages. Um, and that, I, you know, we always thought we knew who we were and you really get into it down to causes and conditions and you start thinking, Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when did you get sober? Let's just start with some easy sure. ones. Yeah. So my uh, very first sober date is uh, November 11th, 2007. Um, here in Canada, that's Remembrance Day. In the United States, I think it's Veterans Day or Armistice Day. It is. I think it's Veterans Day, November 11th. Yeah. Yeah. And or so that Armistice. is, yeah, that's my very first uh, day of sobriety. And it is my only day. And I hope it will be my only day in the future. <laughs> that's amazing. A one ship wonder. Yeah. Like most people don't have that story. So when I meet people who do, I'm just like, wow, you must be very, um, I don't know, either you were really, really ready or you're very smart. (laughs) I was very, very desperate. Yeah. I was very desperate. I had been rolling on around on the bottom for a long time. I was, I was 40 when I, on that day. Wow. Wow. So can you take us back through, um, obviously not your whole life story, but walk us back through what it was like for you in your, in your active addiction and maybe, you know, what led up to it or, um, just kind of your, your backstory, Mm -hmm. I guess. So, um, sure. I'd be happy to do that. Um, uh, and I hope that some listeners can identify, um, when I was 36 to 40 were my last four years of really rolling around on the bottom and really, uh, and I mean on the bottom of whatever that was for me, Mm -hmm. I was rolling around trying to, I was struggling and, and I was really, um, I was really, really struggling. And, um, mm, that, that was, that was the deepest of my addiction was in that timeframe. Um, and it wasn't until I got sober that I realized actually that I had always struggled with alcohol. I had always struggled with my relationship with alcohol. And it wasn't until I had some, 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 some breathing room and some, some sober days free of alcohol that I realized that, you know, from my very first drink at 14 years old, I had, I had felt I could have, I could breathe. I had this, I remember leaving my girlfriend's backyard where her older brother was with a whole bunch of his friends and it was spring. It was like this time of the year. Mm. And, um, and they're saying, you know, here, have a drink, come and join us, have a drink, be a part of belong. You know, you're, you're a cool Mm. kid because, you know, we're asking you to have a few drinks. And, um, and I was nervous to say no. And I said, yes. And I took that drink and I could breathe. Mm. 
All of a sudden I was like, I could breathe. Even though I knew it wasn't right. I was 14 years old. I had that drink and I took off up the hill and ran home and um, hoped and prayed to God that no one would find out that I had had a drink of alcohol. Mm -hmm. My father was, um, had some struggles and my mom had some struggles and um, alcohol was very prevalent in my life as I was growing up. And um, I always knew I didn't want to drink like them. Mm. I I didn't want to get messy. It was a little bit messy when I was younger in our home and, um, and alcohol was prevalent. And so I was scared at 14. And so I didn't, I didn't play around with alcohol for a long time. And in my twenties, I was out in the clubs and I was having a few drinks and things were fun. And, you know, me and my girlfriends would have a great time, but it switched very quickly. It switched very quickly for me. And I was quickly not having fun. And I was shot. I was, I was in places that I shouldn't have been in. I was in very dangerous situations and some of my friends were like, well, Nicole, you know, if you're already having a few drinks, I'm not going out with you tonight. They were already starting to, you know, I was not belonging anymore. Like I was when I was 14 in that backyard, I wasn't belonging anymore. Alcohol turned really quickly for me. Um, but I didn't see it like that then. I right. Thought, oh, problem. I'll go out without you. Yeah. I'll find new friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what had happened over the years is that it always got worse. My relationship with alcohol, um, it, it, it always got worse. I, I um, was never controlling it, even though I was always trying to manage it my mm-hmm. whole life, trying to manage this relationship with alcohol. And I, and I, I was never managing it. You know, I had bouts and uh, of, of not drinking, um, and then always going back to drinking, thinking, well, I'm okay. And, you know, I don't have a problem and I'm not like them and I don't drink like them. And I'm much better than that. And I can quit whenever I want to until I couldn't quit when I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so for, for me, this, this, you know, it was, you know, that, that those days, um, you know, in, in my mid twenties where, you know, I had hit a situation um, life had, had, you know, shot me a couple of curveballs, and I plummeted and I used alcohol to numb and to bury pain and to bury my feelings. And that was a theme throughout my life until I was 40. When I quit is that anytime that life got hard, I went deeper into the bottle. That was my tool to, um, deal with my emotions and to numb out and escape. And, um, when I met my husband when I was 29, I um, I was I was dry. I wasn't drinking alcohol, but I was using some other substance. So I was not sober. I was not abstinent from any mood altering substance. Right. Um, but what what I was using was not as severe. It didn't get me into places like the severity of alcohol did. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, I thought I I knew that I had to. I wanted so desperately to. <laughs> um, get myself out of those pits of desperation. And, um, and so I switched to this substance that I had a little bit more control over. It didn't affect me the way alcohol did. And I felt like I belonged and I was, you know, one of the cool cats again, right. My husband at 29 and, um, we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun and we went to a, a girlfriend's wedding and I said to myself, I'll only have one drink. I'll make it last all night. And that's it. And I did. But it totally got me back into 
drinking alcohol. And then I was, you know, just over some periods of time, I was spiraling. Um, my husband and I got married and we were still having a lot of fun. And then we thought, ah, oh, well, let's see if we can have a family. And um, uh, I got pregnant really quickly and I miscarried very quickly. And I had three of those. Back to back. Thank you. And so here's life, right? Here's life. Here's pain. I don't have the tools to cope. I don't have the tools to process any of my emotions. And my drinking started to get um, heavier. And um, we got pregnant a fourth time. And I, I guess and I want to say that each pregnancy I did not drink during the pregnancies. Um, the fourth pregnancy I did not drink. Um, that fourth preg pregnancy was a longer pregnancy and um, the fetus was now an infant and um, or as they call it a baby. And when I miscarried that child, um, we had to name him and bury him and have a whole like now he has an identity. He's just not the fetus. Now he's an actual baby. <sighs> and that loss plummeted me even deeper into my alcoholism. This is how I know I am a true alcoholic because I, there was no coping. There was no processing. There was straight numbing. I miscarry at home and I'm in the bottle from one room to another room. There's no way I'm going to feel this. I'm blotting this out. And that spiral was very, very severe and um, very, very painful very painful. So I don't know the time frame. It doesn't really matter. I pull up my spot, my socks, my boot strings, and, um, you know, I got to get back to some kind of normalcy. And, um, after some time we conceive a fifth time, lose that one again, deep spiral. Right. Um, and, um, now my husband is like, I'm done. I can't watch you kill yourself anymore. I can't. There was shame. There was so much shame. I don't know if the shame got me sober or if those bottoms got me sober. I don't know which came first. Um, but he was done. I heard him that day and I said, I'll do anything. I mean, he was selling the house. He has, his clothes were packed. He said, I can't watch you kill yourself. You have to get help. You have to. And for some reason, that day, I heard him. There had been many promises. Now we're in that four-year span of that severity, unmanageability, of complete chaos in my drinking. And um, I was so desperate. I was so desperate. So I said, sure, I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll do whatever you say. I'll read those books. I'll go there. I'll do that. I'll meet with her. I'll do whatever you want. And I struggled for another six months drinking, doing whatever I needed to do to try and stay sober. Mm -hmm. And that November 11th came, 2007, and I don't know what happened that day, but something happened that day. And I was in a full surrender. And I don't know what I surrendered to or if I even knew there was a two, but I felt from the tips of my toes such despair such shame, such humility. And I was desperate to save my marriage. And that day I never drank. And I went to bed sober. I went to bed sober. 
Wow. It was a miracle. I went to bed sober that day. I mean, I was the type of drinker in those four years, morning, noon, and night, pass out, get up, don't know if it's six o'clock in the morning or six o'clock at night and do it all over again, having no concept of time. And so for me, that November 11th in 2007, that was a miracle. And then I woke up sober. <laughs> Yay, so that's my thing. That's my favorite thing, waking up sober. And I just threw myself all the recovery I could find. What a great story. Thank you for sharing all of that. And it's, it's incredible how so many of our stories are so similar and we all relate. Um, even if the circumstances were different, that feeling of hopelessness and desperation and, and that whatever that is, and then we're ready for some reason. And I had a similar, you know, thing of trying many, many times and fighting it or stop for a while, things get better, then I'm back at it again type of deal. Um, but for whatever reason that when it happened for me on the day it happened, I said something like, God, if you're real, please help me or just something random because I didn't know what I believed or who was out there or what the deal was, but I knew that what I was doing was not working. And um, there was a feeling that happened and I just knew it was over. I knew it was over. And I had tried many, many times before, like you said, but I knew that waging war against myself had ended that day. And I, I knew I was going to have to do a lot of work and go through a lot of stuff I didn't want to deal with. Right. It wasn't like, oh, I'm better. I knew that. Yeah. But I also so I really appreciate you being vulnerable and, and sharing that um, and also about your losses um, of your pregnancies, because women, I feel like we just don't talk about miscarriages no. and, and all of that female stuff. We just don't talk about it enough. Um, no. So thank you. And I'm really sorry that that happened. Thank you. Um, I had a, I had a six miscarriage in my first year of recovery and um, um, the beauty in that, you know how we, I love to say, um, you know, our joy is relevant to the depth of our sorrow. And um mm. And there was some joy. There was some joy because you know what? I didn't drink. I didn't right. drink. I felt everything. Yeah. I allowed myself to be human and feel what I was feeling and mourn what I was mourning and feel that depth of sorrow. And, you know, it's been a long time now um, and it can still come up in waves and I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay today. And I didn't drink. I didn't use alcohol or any other mood altering substance to get me through those feelings. And I stayed sober. And that was a miracle. And don't you think it helped you to actually be able to really process it, to actually process it in your mind and your body, all of our issues and tissues and all the things that we carry, yes. it allowed you to let it process really. Um, and I know that you and I both know Jean McCarthy from the bubble hour and she talks about this and, and her, some of her guests have talked about it. I, I lost my, my dad in September uh, to cancer and it's the first really big hard thing that's happened in my recovery. And I've been sober almost 10 years. So um, mm -hmm. I was terrified that I just would not be able to feel it and handle it and sit still with it and all this kind of stuff. And people have told me, and I don't know if it was Jean or one of her guests or somebody in my life, I don't remember, but they reminded me what a beautiful honor, how much we are honoring the love of that person by, I'm going to cry, sorry, by grieving. Yeah. 
by allowing ourselves to grieve how, because like you said, that that love was great. The grief was also going to be great. That's, that's sort of the price we pay, I guess, (laughs) when we we love that much or have that much joy. Um, And with parents, it's complicated. Uh, Sometimes those relationships are complicated and they bring up a lot of other stuff from childhood and and whatnot. Um, But to your point, the sorrow, but, but also the joy of being able to be present with it, even though it was terrible, it's still terrible. Um, and like you say, it, is. it doesn't matter how much time goes by. It's those waves will come back. Um, but there's no reason to push them away or run away. Like it's just, I guess it's part of what happens when we love people, you know? Um, yeah. but a very I different response. Very different very different response than how we used to, right? Oh, this is painful. This is uncomfortable. I'm out of here. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And it reminds me of, um, I'm sorry for your loss with your father. Um, I'm very sorry about that. My, um, my best friend, and this is what you, you cued me because my, my best friend who was with me through my, um, alcoholism and my depths of despair through those miscarriages specifically. And then in my early years of recovery, she actually did die of, um, of cancer as well, started in her breasts and then it metastasized to everywhere. And, um, and I was sober enough to watch her and hold her hand and be with her, um, to her very end. And, you know, like you have said, it is extremely, extremely painful but I did not feel the need to numb and escape. I would hold it together when I was with her and we would laugh and share and cry and talk about all kinds of wonderful things. Um, And then I would go into my car and I would wave goodbye to her and I drove around the corner. And that's when I, I just let out all the emotion. I held it together long enough so that she didn't have to go through that pain um, and then I just let myself release and, um, and I can do that sober as a sober yeah. woman in recovery. And I think I was about five, five years sober when she died. Yeah. Wow. That's about right. Five or six years sober. And I was able to show up for her. Yeah. It wasn't about me. And it, it was right. all about being yes. of service to her. Yes. I'm sorry for your loss too. My goodness. And that's again that sorrow and love, right? Yeah. That depth of sorrow is the depth of your love, and the and the depth of that love is the depth of the sorrow, and it right. that's life. Yes, man, it's not easy. It's definitely not always easy. That's for sure. Um, when is the last time you thought about drinking? Or a lot of people say, I don't really think about it anymore. So if that's the case, when's the last time you just had one of those moments, whether it was a resentment or a traumatic, you know, memory, a wave of grief, but when's the last time you felt a wobble, you know, um, in your physical or emotional sobriety and kind of, what did you do to work through it? What, what's a tool that you used? That's such a good question. Um, I, um, the tool that I use, I'm going to start with that is I do moving meditation. I do moving meditation. I do a lot of breath work <clears throat> and I moving do a lot meditation, of time. meaning like walking or yoga or what do you, what does that uh, mean? I do walking, I do dancing. Um, okay. yeah, 
Yeah. Okay. You're moving your body. In, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. In, okay. in my meditation. Yeah. Um, gardening. I'm in the dirt now here in Canada. It is spring. And oh, thank God. Dirt. And my feet are on the ground in my bare feet on the grass. And, nice. um, and I do, and I share, I'm sharing with you. Um, I share with friends. I share with mentors. I have a coach. I share with her. I share with my husband. I share, I do a lot of talking, talking it through. I feel, I think, yes, I'm sad. I give myself permission now. It's amazing. But you know what? I still dream about drinking. I don't uh, go day to day thinking about drinking, um, but I dream about drinking. I still have drinking dreams. And it, I, I, yeah, I enjoy it because it reminds me of where I've come from. Yes. Oh, come, you know, I remember, I remember I was a messy drunk. Yeah, me too. And you wake up and you're that for me anyway, that first moment of terror of like, please tell me that was not real. <laughs> and oh, then you feel absolutely. so happy and relieved to realize that was not real life. Um, yeah. Yeah. So my next question is, can we talk about hormones and yes. sobriety and being a woman and what that means and whether it's just all the things, whether it's PMS, it's yeah. all the different things, perimenopausal stuff, because it is a whole nother layer layer of, I don't even know what, and it messes yeah. with all kinds of systems and moods and sleep and body image. And for me anyway, I'm just speaking personally, but can we talk about that? Yeah. I want to talk about it too with you. Oh my gosh. I'm so grateful that you bring that up because um, 56 premenopausal. My doctor says I'm the oldest patient she's had that is at the beginning of her menopause journey. She said, you should be way through this. I don't know if it has anything to do with six miscarriages. No one can answer that question. I've asked many of the doctor. There is no research. There is no research on that, of course. Um, so there are hot flashes, freezing, brain fog. Oh, my gosh. The thinking. Oh, my gosh. The brain fog. The mood swings. The taking hormone replacement, not taking hormone replacement, tried the hormone replacement. Ooh, yeah, I don't have mood swings, but now I'm scared I'm going to have a heart attack. Right. You know, cancer or whatever, all the side effects. Yeah. 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 So many details that as women, for myself anyway, that I had to research and I had to learn about and I had to decide for myself what I was going to put my body through. And you know what? I'm so friggin' grateful that I get to make these decisions. Yes. I can think clearly and make these decisions for myself. And I hear my body now. Mm -hmm. I hear her. Like she is this amazing, beautiful being that is telling me, hmm, I don't really, I don't really like being on the pill for my brain fog and my mood swings. I don't really like how that makes me feel. I don't really like how the hormone replacement made me feel. So I just go off of it. I have choice today and I got to go off of it. I got to try it. I got to decide for myself, right. think for myself and decide, no, this isn't right for me. How, um, how else am I going to manage this? So I tried some natural things. I tried some St. John Warts for my mood swings working perfectly for me. I'm going to be really candid and maybe it's too much information. Um, but I did a hormonal IUD and it has been wonderful. 
Really? Wonderful. Yes. Never had an IUD in my whole wildlife ever. And, um, okay. I want to hear this. Tell me, tell me. Yeah. So it's a hormonal IUD and it's going to last for seven years. And, um, it's, it's expressing the, just a small amount of hormones that has totally helped me with my mood swings. And it's helped me with my flow, with my cycle. Right. Because I had an extremely heavy cycle that was putting me into, um, an iron deficiency situation that Mm -hmm. I've been in for 10 years. Right. It's completely managed all of that for me. It's fantastic. So I'm not sure what it's like for you in Texas and Austin, where you are and what's available for you. But here in Canada, we have this hormonal IUD um, and it is the rage. I have heard it works beautifully. All kinds of different things and talk to different um, because I am perimenopausal and 47. So I think I'm early. I'm on the other end of the spectrum. And I'm like, God, help me. How long is this going to last? And they're like, oh, it can last like five to seven years. I was like, excuse me. <laughs> um, but I had a, uh, I know that we're getting very personal, but you know, this is real life. So I've had yeah. a Paragard, um, 10 year Paragard, which is the hormone free. So that's the IUD with nothing in it. It just prevents pregnancy. And, um, I, because the pill and all the things that I did before, just my skin, my, it just wreaked havoc on my system. I remember just, um, as a young woman, um, you know, weight late, weight loss, weight gain, mood swings, um, skin issues, yeah. just all that. So I was like, you know what? I am, I'm, I'm done with all that. Um, but now then you have the problem of, well, well now what are we going to do about this? My motherboard short circuiting, hormonally speaking, where everything is, you know, and I've tried the creams that you rub on your wrist and your abdomen. I've yeah. tried the St. John's wort, Sammy, I think is what it's called. It's kind of like a mood estrogen type of, but the more research you do, because there isn't any actual research on behalf of women, really, it's, it's confusing. And if you do this, you're risking that. And if you don't do right. And so like you're saying, you, I've had to ask other women and, you know, um, try to learn from them and no one's ever said a hormonal IUD really helped them. So I thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, And I think we need to advocate for ourselves. I tell my female, well, and my male clients, yeah. We have to advocate for ourselves. We must advocate for ourselves. Well, a lot of times in the medical community, and this is pretty well documented, I believe, and and certainly in places like Texas, I won't even get into that. But, um, you know, a lot of times women are spoken down to or said, you know, your lab work is fine. You're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Basically saying you're crazy. You're imagining all of these things that are happening with your body when we know that's not to be true. So then you have to go do your own research, find a holistic doctor find other people to talk to about literally what they did. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't great doctors out there that who listen and will really, really listen and work with you. Um, yeah. Generally speaking though, it's not a great experience for a lot of women. Um, and so they just deal with it. They just suck it up and deal with it. And they assume it's all in their head and they suffer needlessly for however long. And all that ties back to, to sobriety for me, because it's like hungry, angry, lonely, tired, all these rules and, and knowing how you feel, what's going on with me. Well, if I'm feeling resentful and I, I know a step, I know work that I can go do. I know writing and the things I need to do to address that. If it's a hormonal yeah. imbalance, no amount of writing or whatever is going to help me And that. I'm like, can I afford to be in a bad mood for five years? 
No. <laughs> you want to? No, I didn't get sober to be to be cranky all the time. You know. No, exactly, exactly. And you know, I'm so glad that we are talking about this two women in long term recovery because we need to stick together and we need to be able to bounce ideas off of one another just exactly for the same reason that you're talking about our medical communities in the United States and in Canada. Um, We have to help one another and all of our bodies are different, but yet, you know what, we can come together as women and share our, uh, our experience of what has been working and what's not working. Right. And what works for your body may not work for mine and vice versa. And that's fine, but it's just good to get an idea of people's real experiences Um, and try different things. And like you said, most importantly, is listening to our bodies. Because when I drank and used, I couldn't even hear what my body was ever telling me. And now every day in my morning meditation, I thank my body for all the things that she has done and endured and does for me now. Um, And I have this great appreciation, but also I listen. When my body tells me something, I am, first of all, I can hear it, I can feel it. And then also I I listen to it. so I really appreciate you, you know, bringing that up and encouraging us to advocate uh, for ourselves and and also look at other things. There's more than just hormone replacement therapy. There's more than just this, this, and this, right? There's probably um, all kinds of things that you can combine based on what works for your body chemistry and where you are in the process too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And being able to say, yes, I'm going to try hormone replacement. Yes, I'm going to try birth control pill for this. Yes, I'm going to try um, hormonal IUD. I'm going to try it all, man. I'm going to try it all. Yep. I deserve to try it all. I'm going to try the naturopaths. I'm going to try Eastern medicine. I'm going to try it all. Because you know what? We can. Yes. And it can. It too ties back to sobriety, recovery, being alcohol free, whatever you want to call it. To me, it's that same approach. There's not just one way. There are so many ways, or maybe it's a collection of a cafeteria style. I'm going to take these things because they work for me. I'm going to leave the rest and being open-minded to other people's suggestions and and that kind of stuff. And not just listening to somebody because they're a doctor and because they say, this is what you should do. Like we have to also think about, do I like this? Does this make me feel, you know? Um, so I, that's, that's huge. Um, Thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to look into a hormonal IUD because this, yeah, yeah, I, I could use more yeah. as support, especially if this is going to last for a really long time. Um. <laughs> I, know. I don't mean to laugh. I, I'm no. laughing because when I was told, I'm, I got, oh, yeah, this IUD will last you seven years. We hope and pray you will be through menopause by then, Mrs. Cameron. I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. It just is so I, when I was Googling it, I was thinking they would say like, Oh, after, you know, three or four months, I was just expecting this tiny little and they, and I read the thing and I was like, is this a joke? What are, what? And I no one tells us that. I had one kid and I'm good. And this factory has been closed for many, many years. And there's no intention to ever fire it back up again. So like, why do we still have to do this? You know, is my whole thing. Um, <laughs> I love and respect. I love and respect my body and I appreciate all of the systems and all the things that are going on. But um, like I said, I'm a very pragmatic person. If there's something going on with me emotionally, I have tools now and I know how to go work on those things and work through those things. But with hormones, you know, I, I need help, right? I need assistance and I need to not be embarrassed. I don't want to be embarrassed to talk about it. 
you know, or, or act like it's something you don't talk about or whatever. Um, so I love the fact that we're talking about this and I hope it helps a lot of other women just be willing to talk about it, ask for help, advocate for ourselves and all the things we need to do. Yeah. Second opinions all the way. Oh yeah. At least, at least two. So what is something that makes you genuinely belly laugh? Like something that, cause you know, we talk about keeping a sense of humor, not taking ourselves too seriously, right? Like remembering to be kind of lighthearted and recovery and uh, full of wonder and, and that kind of thing. So what's something that you do to kind of keep that going in your life with humor or whatever? Oh, well, I just had a huge belly laugh with you. Um, <laughs> and yes, right. And yesterday, uh, so, you know, being with like-minded people, being honest and open and vulnerable. Yes. Um, and yesterday, um, yesterday I thought of you and I thought, oh, I must remember to tell you this. What was I doing yesterday? Oh, I was in a coaching session with a client and she said something so funny. And I was like, I shocked myself at my own sound of my laughter. And um, yeah, I was like, oh, well, that was kind of loud. But I do recall my very, very first belly laugh in sobriety. I remember it. And it was in this house. And I was about six months sober, seven months sober. And I was at the kitchen sink. And my husband and I was doing some dishes. And my husband was saying something. And I don't remember what he said. It wasn't about what he said. It was that I did not recognize my own laughter. Mm. And I did kind of do this. And my husband went. And then we really started to laugh. I hadn't heard her. Right. For years. That childhood belly laughter. And you know what? Now today, um, what gets me going is you, it's almost, it's always when I'm with other people and not necessarily people in recovery or not in recovery, but just, just having good, healthy relationships with people. I get to choose who I'm in relationship with today. I don't have to be in relationship with toxic people. I just, I just don't, I don't have to. I did that in active addiction. I don't, cause so I could drink. I don't need to do that today. And so I think that I think that that's a huge piece is that I get all I get to have all these great, fantastic relationships with people, yeah. family, not family and um, and people that I've just met like you yeah. and really be honest and vulnerable and have that be- belly laugh like, yeah, I hear you. I know what you're saying. I I hear you. I well, hear it's, you. it's so profound that you brought that up that you didn't even recognize your own laughter because we are, we've convinced ourselves that we're having all this fun, right? When we're using and drinking or whatever. And like, that that's the whole lie. That's part of the whole fake, whatever is like, this is so fun. I'm having fun. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm, you know, this, that, and the other, I don't have a care in the world. But if you really think about it, all my friends were drinking friends. My laughter was chemically induced. My, my friendships, my, um, for kind of everything. And even some of my sadness was chemically induced because I'm pouring a depressant on top of depression, essentially. Um, yeah. so, you know, what, am I actually sexually attracted to this person or did I just have too much to drink? And I think I'm sexually attracted to this person, right? It's, it was all so far away from the core of who we actually are. So when we start getting back to ourselves and you know, that that laugh was pure, it was pure. There's no chemicals. There's no ulterior motives. You're not hanging around with people who are trying to get one over on you or vice versa. It's just this, this purity. And like you said, it's childlike. 
It's like being a little yeah. kid. Like things are hilarious. And, yeah. and and your friendships in your life are real. Like those are the people you could call at two in the morning and say, can you come over and have some tea with me? I need to speak, talk, you know, um, exactly. whereas my party friends or my fair weather friends, like they were nowhere to be found. You know what I mean? No, I hear you. I, exactly. Exactly. We have similar stories. And, you know, having that belly laugh today often will bring up joys of tear. Like I will laugh so hard that I'm crying. <laughs> and it is over simple things. Like it yeah. is not these profound things. Yeah. I went to a, a comedy gig not that long ago. And I said to my husband, Hal, I'm like, I don't really get stand up comedy. I don't really understand comedy. Um, and so, but we'll go. So we go and I am howling. I'm howling because now I understand stand-up comedy. I never knew what it was before. And it was, um, have you ever seen Mulvaney? John oh Mulvaney? Gosh. Yes. Didn't he just, he, was, he talks a lot about recovery and stuff now. Yeah. And yeah. he was there. And I'm like, get out to my husband. Like, we're going to listen to a, a hilarious comedian on recovery. His story is hilarious. It's hilarious. I just saw his special, like, is it Netflix? I can't remember what it came out on, but it, it's a recent, this is a recent one. And my um, college age niece, that's her favorite comic. And I had never heard of him before. And she was showing us clips. And I was like, this guy is funny. And he's in a suit. He and he's just so different than a lot of the comics. Yeah. Yeah. But it's cool yeah. how in sobriety an experience is so different. Right. And we wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of things off. Um, as, Oh, I don't like that. I don't even get that. I don't understand that or whatever, but now I don't know, are we just more open? Are we more lighthearted? Um, cause I remember thinking I'd be really, really bored, really bored in sobriety. And instead everything's like an adventure, you know, <laughs> you know, so, so what's your, uh, you know, you're obviously a, a, a coach and, and a mentor and you help guide people through life situations and things like that. You also have others who help guide you. Um, yeah. what, what would your number one go-to tool or advice be for leaving an unhealthy relationship with alcohol or anything else that limits us? Because alcohol is one of many, many, many things, as we know. Um, yeah. But where would, where do you start with people, right? Like what's yeah. the number one? I'm sure there are many, many tools in the, in the toolbox, but what's a good starting point to get honest about those relationships. Yeah. And yeah. So to get honest about the relationship is I always ask, you know, can you stop when you really want to, mm. can you really stop when you really want to? And when I'm in a coaching call and you know, I, I have probably only about 1% of my clients come to me around trying to quit, mm-hmm. um, trying to quit something or leave something, leave a substance. Um, um, but I always ask them, you know, can, you know, can you, can you really stop? You know, do you, re- you know, can you really stop when you want to? And um And then once they, you know, once they get really honest in a coaching session, that's complete safety. I do all Mm -hmm. my coaching on the phone. Some clients I never, ever see face to face and they love it just like that. Yeah. Um, That's why I only do coaching on the phone. Um, um, So, you know, I create that safety and by um, being really, really confident um, in, in ensuring that they're private and that I'm holding, I'm their container for safety. They come mm. to me because they know that it's not going anywhere. And yeah. so they can get really honest and vulnerable 
with me of where they are. And if they can, if they can be honest, they can get well. And, but they have to admit what their relationship with their substance is. And if they're done, they might not be done. And that's okay if they're not done, but be honest about not being done and be honest about being done, being done and not being able to stop. Right. If that's That's the case for some people. But isn't it interesting, don't you find that a lot of people think they can stop if they wanted to, and then they try, and then that's when we realize, uh-oh. Yeah, same. And I could not figure it out. I'm like, I am the most bullheaded, capable, like, I refuse to be Mars. defeated. Yes. And I, I'm like, I don't understand why I can't figure this out. This is impossible. Um or yeah. thinking I was done in my heart of hearts, many times believing that I was done for real. I wasn't lying to people and I didn't think I was lying to myself. I was really done. So I thought, well, I, I really wasn't. Um, but like yeah. I told you, when that moment that day when I finally was in full surrender and had the gift of desperation or whatever you want to call it, I knew. And it was a different kind of knowing. It was over. Yeah. And, and I knew it. You're right. Your knower knew. Your knower yes. knew. We have this knower and we know. And when the client gets there, then I say to them, now the work starts of interrupting that thought. Yeah. We have, and, and we, we, we have to interrupt the thought. Oh, a drink would be good about now. Oh no, I don't drink. I have to do something else. I have to interrupt the thought that can interrupt the behavior because what we think about, we bring about. And if I'm going to sit here and think about how I'm going to drink in about an hour, I'm going to drink unless I interrupt the thought of, oh, I don't drink. I don't drink alcohol. I'm going to do this instead. Oh, yeah, I don't shop at alcohol stores. Here in Canada, we're lucky we don't have alcohol in our grocery stores like you guys do in the States. Yeah, we Um, do. So I can bypass liquor stores. And I just just drive by them and say, oh, yeah, I don't shop there, 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 there anymore. I have to interrupt my thoughts, and then I can interrupt the behavior. It's about interruption. And that's where I start. Always. So smart. So smart because it's deep in those neural pathways, right? They're just these like old, old, old patterns, but they're well-worn paths. And we, we, sometimes you don't want to go down the path, but you just find it. You're there you go. There's a drink in your hand. You're like, how did this happen? Oh, you know, Um, it's funny. My original sponsor used to say something like, do you stop and read a billboard that's talking about a diabetes medication? I was like, no, I don't have diabetes. She was like, that's how alcohol is for you. Now it doesn't apply, you know? And I was like, no. Um, And then something else too, that reminded me when you were talking about that. And it's the fact I needed to be, I needed to understand that this was not willpower and this was not intellectual. It was truly retraining the brain, replacing habits, behaviors, patterns, people, places, thing, all this, all this stuff. Several years sober, I walked into this venue where there was going to be a concert and I was so excited. I was in Denver, Colorado. It was a gorgeous day. And I was so excited, just bubbling to see this show. And I my, I was like, I am so excited to just go grab a beer and just go see the show. My mind was, and I don't drink. I hadn't, I had been sober for several years, but that thought was as real as if I had never stopped drinking. And it's because my brain lit up with the weather, the excitement about the show. And my mind had gotten so trained on alcohol is always part of these fun experiences. 
And what'd I, you do? Two, second, two seconds later, my brain was like, what? You don't even drink anymore. But it was such a weird thing to observe my own mind do what it does. But I didn't have to act on it. Um, nope. But it scared you me. Interrupted. I'm not going to yeah. lie. It scared me. Oh, yeah. That's how quickly. But look at what you did. You interrupted and you replaced. And that's exactly what I coach and consult people with. That's exactly that. what I, that I say them to say they that they need to do. And that's why I became a coach. That's a, all that the coaching nice, that, that was on I, my list as a question. Why did you become a coach? Okay. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. Because I am fascinated with the cognitive thought. I'm fascinated what happens to our thinking when the drinking is gone. That's where it started for me. And yeah. I was a client and I was a client and I didn't hire my coach um, for substance or alcohol or anything like that. I was three years sober and I was starting a new business and I hired her for that. And I fell in love with the whole process. And that's how I became a coach. Then wow. I started just taking coaching courses all over the place. And, um, and the last one that I took is narrative coaching, but all of my coaching has been about cognitive thought and narrative coaching is about, um, it's about, it's a, it's a definite guide to creating new stories dumping those old stories. I'm in Colorado. The music, the music is, this is a, my favorite band. One of my favorite bands, the weather is beautiful. I'm just going to go grab a beer. That's an old story. Yep. So I help you go through, do, I untangle all of that and you create a new story and then you live in the new story. And the old story is an old story. It gets retired, but right. that's narrative coaching, self-sabotage, narrative thinking. And, and it's, it's all about the thought. And the belief that I wouldn't be able to fully have fun in the experience without the alcohol because I had trained myself to believe that. I didn't even go to places that didn't serve alcohol because why bother, right? So my my thinking had been like that for so many years and it's not going to just undo itself in a short amount of time. You have to, and it can't just happen once that you do it. You have to no. just pave over that old story so many times. And then eventually it's second nature. That thought never comes anymore. But man... I was so secure in my recovery and so happy in my recovery. I wasn't sad. I wasn't running from anything. The scary thing, I was ha- I was so happy. I felt so happy that day. And I think that too, with this brain that I have, if I feel really, really good, I just want to feel a little bit better, right? Just a little more. Just, just a, a little, little more, more, right? Yeah. And yeah. why though? It was just like, it was like, but I understand that. So when you're, when I'm looking through your website and your different offering offerings, and I've read, you know, different things that you've put out, um, I see that you work with issues like codependency, internal family systems. My therapist and I have used IFS for years and I love it. I love the exiled firefighter, the manager, understanding that everybody's trying to work together. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of damage that goes on. Right. I know. Right. And, and not even knowing that that's what, what I was doing. So what is the difference between coaching and therapy? I mean, you know, do you think that some clients just need coaching? Some clients need both. Um, Is there, there's obviously a difference, but what, can you kind of, I don't know, untangle that for me a little bit? So, yeah. So really quickly. So a coach, I, in coaching as your partner, no hierarchy. We are partners. We are, we are accountability partners. I take you from where you are today to where you want to be. So intentions, desires, demands, what do you want to create in your life? What do you want to create? And I, and I become your partner and we lock hands and we, when we create this new 
lifestyle that you want. We create this new career that we want, uh, that you want. You want to create something. You want to, you need to leave a relationship. I, right now, unfortunately, I'm working with a lot of people that are separating. Right. A lot of people are in divorce, which is really unfortunate. Um, But I, mm -hmm. so I help people move from where they are today to where they want to go. Where they, career relationships, personal development, deep dives into spirituality, whatever they want to create. A therapist works in the past. Mm. They work clinically and they diagnose. They are a clinician. And so they are working on reoccurring issues. Just always remember that the therapist works on a reoccurring issue. That can often be diagnosed, sometimes medicated, sometimes not medicated. And so some of my clients, depending on who they are and what they're going through, I refer them to to therapists that I know of and that I have relationship with. And um, the therapist and myself, we will work together with the client. And then we have an open relationship to share information through agreements on that client. That is common. Yeah, because even sometimes when I work with women in recovery, go ahead. Yeah, sometimes clients come to me and they're all done therapy. They're all done with therapy. They've been in therapy yeah. for years. They've done what they want to do. And now they are busy. They want to get going. They want to get into how can, what can I create? How can I create it? And who's it going to serve? Right. And they want a partner. And I'm right there for them. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. What a cool thing yeah. to have a mentor, a partner, someone walking hand in hand and who's been through it too. Personally, you're not just theoretically teaching. <laughs> you're coming no. from a place of actual experience. Yeah. And right. what's really, really important about a coach is that we are deep, deep listeners hmm. because we believe that the client has has the answer deep within themselves. We help them. We help them. You know, everybody has a light under all this dirt and the dirt is life experience. And we help them get rid of the dirt so they can shine because their lights under all this life experience that they need to untangle, right. sort out, uh, heal from, mend from <clears throat> and shine. Incredible. I love that yeah. so much. Um couple more questions. I know we're coming up on time, but what's your favorite thing about being sober? Oh, waking up in the morning. Yeah. Waking up sober every morning. That is so Never real. Never old. It's so real. I know it sounds, when... it sounds lame, but no? it's still true. It's true for me. But, but anybody who's lived in that hell of waking up, hungover, getting crappy sleep, wondering what happened the night, just all the, that terror and the panic and then the anxiety that comes from the withdrawal of the alcohol and knowing you have to face the day and to wake up, even if I'm feeling very hormonal or I'm, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, that is nothing compared to the hell that we hellscape that we woke up to every single day. Um, and waking up sober and knowing that like you get to just you get to really show up for yourself and other people and that we get to still make mistakes in sobriety because we're just human beings. Um, yeah. But it's not going to be a, on account of alcohol. It's going to be just our humanity, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yay. So you're, I'll, I'll, I'll end on this question. Um, and again, I want to remind our listeners that they can find your work at coachwithnicole.ca uh, at your website or you're on Instagram Coach with Nicole. I love your posts, by the way. They're 
they're always succinct and thought provoking and encouraging. And I can totally see how it it feels like a coach, you know, like a, like a coach who's kind of letting you figure it out by yourself, but also with support and with encouragement and helping you to uncover things. Cause we have blind spots. We all have blind spots. There's no way I can ever see my own stuff um, That's right. without help, you know? So I, I do love, I do love looking at your Instagram, but your website talks about exploring your habits of thinking. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a real world example, maybe like a little mini session that we can apply to, um, to our lives. Can it be distilled down like that? Or is that too big of a, <laughs> yeah. So no, um, I thought about, I thought a little bit about this. So this is what I'd like to leave the, your, you and your listeners with is that, um, uh, we, we take on gen- generational beliefs. We take on generational beliefs from fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, teachers, neighbors, aunts and uncles, people that we really, really love and, and, and have this fragile underpinning of trust with. We take yeah. on their generational beliefs. It's just human nature. Um, what I, which becomes the way we think and, and it, and it, and it, go, and it pours into habits of thinking. So for instance, I had a generational belief that I had a need to be right because if I was right, you would think I'm smart. Mm. That was a generational belief from my grandmother. And I took that on and I lived a long time with trying to make you um, think that I was smart um, with a need to be right. But my need to be right, if I'm right, you're wrong. And I'm crushing your self-esteem right. by my need to be right because I have a generational belief that if I'm right, I'm smart. So right. I had to ask, does that serve me? And it, was it mine or was it someone else's? Was that my belief or was that someone else's? And after I did all the uncovering with my coach, I found, I discovered that was my grandmother's belief that I took on as my own that did not serve me. So then I had to do the untangling and and uh, work in my thinking to let go of that generational belief that I had had for 30 years that was hurting me and people that I loved. Right. So So, do you think that, do you think that you needing to be perceived as being smart was some form of validation? Like you were seeking validation essentially at the end of, at the root of that, maybe, and maybe coming from your grandmother because of her generation, maybe women weren't heard and maybe, so does it tie back to those kind? Cause to me, that's where I, I was like, wait, did we have the same grandmother? <laughs> <laughs> I have that thing where I need to be right. Okay. Um, but in recovery, I've learned I've, it's that humility of like, if I had all the answers, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and also I always want to keep learning. And so I don't want to have all the answers and no, I learned some of the most important things from people that I vehemently disagree with on really fundamental things. And I may not wow. be comfortable conversations, but man, they teach me, they teach me about myself. You know, how I can be intolerant of intolerance. Like if someone else is doing it in a way that I don't agree with, it's wrong. But if I'm doing it, somehow it's justified. I don't know. But I love, I love. So so you identify. Yeah. See, now you're thinking, right? That's what I'd love to 
leave with everyone is think about that. Think about your beliefs and where did they come from and do they serve you? Are they yours? Well, that's the main question is, is it, does it work? Is it, does it work? And the answer is no, it's making, it's hurting myself. It's like you say, it's hurting other people around because in in order for me to be right, I've got to, I've got to kind of step on your, well, then you're wrong. Right. Like it's just human, right? If you're right, I'm wrong. If I'm right, you're wrong. It's, it's that, it's that analytical thought process, black, white, Right. right, wrong. And it's interesting too of what need it's trying to fulfill. Because for me, when you said that, I was thinking, but why do you need people to think you're smart? Is it because, right? Like, where does that come from? And I'm sure you can just keep going layers down of. And that's what coaching looks like and feels like layer under. So we identify this. Then we start talking about this. Oh, and now this comes up. Oh, let's unpack that. Let's unpack this. Oh, untangle that. That's coaching. Right. Because underneath all that stuff is your light, your truth, your vulnerability, your true self. The parts are here. The generational beliefs are here. Um, where's your core values? Where are your core strengths? What are your character strengths? So cool. I love that. I love that kind of stuff. There's this uh, poem, this really old poem called the Desiderata, and it talks somewhere about listening to, you know, avoiding loud people, their vexations to the spirit, but also that, you know, boring people have their story too, or it's something like that. But it's essentially like, if someone doesn't agree with me on a fundamental level, I usually just kind of like, I want to write them off or not even listen to that. But at the end of the day, like they have their stories too, and their filters and their experiences and their generational training and their reasons for believing in that. And it doesn't mean I have to agree with them, but I should respect it. Right. At least because I want them to respect me too. Um, But that's, that's that whole double standard. I want you to respect me, but I may or may not respect your opinion. (laughs) It's funny. It's funny to see yeah. the hypocrisy, yeah. the, du- the duality that we all have, right? It's just, you know, but then the the courage and the knowledge, the skills of having a coach to show you, okay, well, now that we know this, how do we behave differently next time we have the opportunity, right? To choose a different reaction. Exactly. Um, I love that. I'm, um, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all this with us. And it has been just eye-opening and delightful and lots of laughter. And um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful that I was here to spend some time with you and to get to know you. I've loved our conversation. Um, I always do free intro coaching sessions. Like I always meet people on the phone and do a meet and greet and we talk about coaching and it's always no obligation. So that's always open to you and to all your listeners. That is awesome. Coachwithnicole.ca or on Instagram as well. Okay, well, I might be reaching out because I could use a coach. (laughs) I would love it. I'd love to chat more. Well, thank you again. 